Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today is episode two of our great and inspiring conversation with Jody Brown. Jody, thank you so much for joining us again. We just realized as we were learning from and with you last time, there was not enough time to really get to the meat of everything that you've been through and have to offer us through what you've learned. So thank you so much for coming back. And I'm just going to turn it right over to you to pick up where we left off last time. Well, thank you. I'm pleased to be here again. It's an honor. And where we left off was that I was fighting for my life in the hospital, trying to find a way to survive what was initially a brain tumor diagnosis, but ended up being a series of complications and side effects from the removal of the tumor that kept me fighting for my life and in the hospital in neurocritical care for 35 days, dealing with facial paralysis, pneumocephalus, a spinal fluid leak, and a host of other conditions. And... One of the things I mentioned right as we were closing the last episode was that it was other people who really kept me going. It was knowing that so many other people were fighting for me that gave me the strength to keep fighting when I no longer had the strength on my own. And I can't over say how important that was. It really cemented in my mind that no act of kindness is small when someone is in need. We talk often about, oh, little random acts of kindness, or, oh, I just did this little thing. But you don't know when literally someone's life is depending on having that little boost or that little piece of hope for the day. And I loved that I had that amazing support and that network to really keep me going. Part of what I gained from that was sincere gratitude and appreciation for all of the little things that were going right. I started mental checklists, kind of mental gratitude lists of, okay, well, I might still be in the hospital, still fighting for my life, but Tyson is the guy who's the phlebotomist today, and his pinpricks are so gentle and soft, they don't even hurt. Uh, We had a good meal served today, and I ate something that actually tasted good, or we got a good report from the doctor, or one of my favorite CNAs is on staff, or hearing the familiar voice of a dear friend who called or a cute fun text that was sent to me by a girl in my neighborhood. All of those little things became a gratitude list in my mind to realize I had so many things to be thankful for. And that really just gave me strength and having my family fighting there alongside of me. All of those were critically important. 
And as things finally started to get a little bit better, and when my life was no longer in such critical care, what I also started realizing is no one knows my body better than I do. And so while the doctors were speculating about what was going on, I could feel what was going on. And I didn't have necessarily the medical terminology to be able to tell them the diagnosis on any given day. I did realize I had more control than I thought I did. And it was when I finally started to take that control back into my own hands that a lot of the real progress came. It was when I stopped saying, yes, I'm just a dummy lying here in the bed, do whatever, you know, needle poke, prod, test you need to do. It was when instead I said, I need you to leave my room and just let me sleep because what I really need is some rest. It was when I started to really advocate for myself and listen to my body that I was able to start making those small gains. And part of that meant I had to physically get strong enough to be able to leave the hospital. And the things that I dreaded early on, like physical therapy, I started embracing and setting little goals for myself. Okay, the other day we got up and I was able to walk around the nurse's station. Today I'm going to do multiple laps around the nurse's station. Or today I'm going to try and climb, you know, a set of stairs. And those sound like small things that for me, when I'd been kept alive by staying down flat and just on IVs for over a month, my body had really deteriorated. I lost a ton of weight. I was down to 89 pounds. And I really had to start giving myself little goals to work toward. So almost as though I were training for a sport or, you know, had a coach, we started setting little goals. and like, okay, here's what I'm going to do today. Here's what I'm going to do today. And kind of wearing myself out by taking the little steps, by setting little goals and accomplishing little goals. I'm going to, you know, eat a little bit more today. I'm not going to rely on food and nutrients from the IVs, but I'm going to try and eat. I'm going to try and have a little bit bigger meal or, you know, whatever it was, each little aspect of my care, I started taking control back and setting goals for myself and also letting the people around me know that I was the one in control instead of them. Now, granted, there were many times during my hospitalization where I couldn't have done that, where I was physically unconscious and I relied on everyone taking the best care of me that was possible. But when I did get to the point where I finally started making real progress, I saw that really it was up to me, that how long I stayed hospitalized was very dependent on how hard I was willing to work and how determined I was to get home and get better instead of literally just staying there and withering away and dying of hopelessness, which was another very real possibility. So I think one of the things that I would say is you have to learn to trust yourself, trust your instincts to listen to what your body is telling you. And then to be able to communicate that without fear, to advocate for yourself, to say to someone else who you might think they're the ones in charge, but instead say, no, I'm the one in charge of my body, and let me tell you what I think that I need right now. Of course, you have to take into consideration all of the advice and the things that people with more information and education are telling you. But given all of that, I think it's really important for you to take your journey into your own hands and help map out your path rather than letting others map it out for you. That was one of the things that really helped me 
get out of the hospital and go home to my family. Uh, and I'm so grateful for that. And I will never forget the day that I was able to walk out of that, well, be wheeled in a wheelchair out of the hospital and go home to my family. And I really thought I would leave kind of feeling like a conquering hero. I, I imagined this joyous jaunt out of the hospital and I pictured, you know, the halls lined up with caregivers and just feeling kind of victorious by the time I finally left. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. By the time I left and my room had been cleared, it was being cleaned and someone else was going to be admitted and all of the hospital staff had then been assigned to someone else. So when I got wheeled out of the hospital, there was no one there. There was no big celebrations, but my husband was there to take me out, load me in the car and really help me understand the importance of I was going home. I was going back. And even though the white picket fence life wasn't going to look like it used to, it was a huge step of getting a little bit of that normalcy back because I was going to be going home and being surrounded by my family and the people who loved me and the neighborhood that had supported me and kept me going. So it was a joyous day. And when we did turn the corner to come into my neighborhood, there were signs and balloons and a parade of people in my neighborhood who were waiting for the car, followed the car all the way to my house. And there were literally dozens of people standing and cheering and wishing me well and giving me hugs and surrounding me with hope and love as I came home. Jody, one of our homecoming ever. One of our guests called his group of friends and family that loved him through his uh, hard times. He called him his healing team. And I'm picturing Mm. this. I've, I've been to your neighborhood. I'm, I'm picturing your neighbors just standing there like, Jody, we love you. We're going to help you heal. We're your healing team. Even if the hospital had to go on to be, you know, the next patient, I get that. But those that you love and those that love you, welcoming you home, wanting to cheer you on. That's such a beautiful sight in my mind. I love that. The healing team. I referred to mine as my pack of angels. Oh, also awesome. I thought of a pack like, you know, a wolf pack or a dog pack or a pack of animals that are there to support each other. And you have kind of the people, they step in and help to make sure that everyone's needs are taken care of. And that's how I felt. Um, but unlike a pack of wolves, mine were a pack of angels. And they stepped in to make sure that every need that my family had was taken care of. That is so beautiful. And I, when I think of a pack of wolves or pack of something, I think that's, that's a relentless group. That's not just a group. It's not just a conglomerate. No, it's a pack. These people are in it for you. They're in it for the long haul. Can you tell us how that and they're pack? Strong. Yeah, and they're they're, they're gonna, carrying. They're you. not going to back down. No, at no. Any little, they're not turning their back. Little challenge. Yeah. No. So what does it look like? You finally got home. It, it, it was over a month, but it probably felt like a lifetime or two. What's it like when you finally made it home? Well, that's a good question. You know, my daughter actually asked me right before I left the hospital. I'd probably been in the hospital about a month. I was talking to her on the phone. I'd called home to check on the kids, and she said, "Well, has it been a year yet?" And I said, has it been a year, sweetie? And she said, has it been a year since you left? I said, a year? No, no, honey. It's been a month. I know it was a really long month, but it's only been a month. And she said, well, because there were some kids in the neighborhood and they came and they planted flowers in our yard and now the flowers are blooming and I just, you haven't even seen them yet. And I just don't even, I don't want them to die before you have the chance to see them. 
And oh my I goodness. thought, oh my gosh, you know, as much as I was going through, yeah. you could talk to each of my kids. I was going to say, we could and, do an interview with each of them and get a totally personal story. Yeah, a different perspective of the experience that they had. So being home was so wonderful and glorious and such a wake-up call at the same time. Yeah. Because I expected that by the time I got home, I would be well, I would be healthy, I would be able to do things for myself again. Back to normal. Um, yeah, I kind of pictured it like, okay, you go in, you have a baby, and yes, things are harder when you leave with a baby, but after a little while, you know, you find that new normal and you you get back to it. I didn't have any idea that it was going to be such a long-term thing, that some of my challenges from the hospital, while my life was preserved, some of those complications and side effects had made lasting changes on my body. And I was still a very, very sick person and had the facial paralysis and wasn't really able to care for myself. So for many, many months, my mom lived with us and took care of us and just helped as we did those little baby steps back toward what I would say was a little bit more normal life. And some of the things that really, really helped me again, was setting of goals, creating steps that I wanted to be able to take, things I wanted to be able to achieve. In the meantime, I'd left my job, and I had no idea when I left, you know, how long it would be before I would be able to return. I told them months before, just fill my job, have someone else take it, and they insisted that they would hold my job for me. That ended up being such a blessing in my life because I gave myself a date I chose the date, but I gave myself a date on the calendar, a deadline, where I'm going to return to work on this day. And because of that, because I had things to look forward to and things that I felt committed to, it helped hold me responsible to myself. It helped me trust myself and work toward these little goals and dates and achievements so that little by little, I made these commitments, fulfilled the commitments, and could work toward making progress. And I think that is so important to have hope that things are going to get better and then to create the path to be able to realize that hope, to be able to give yourself commitments, dates, deadlines, accountability for the progress that you want to make. Because it's very easy to say, I'm recovering. Everyone in the world said, oh, Jody, do I do whatever you need to? Don't put too much pressure on yourself. And granted, that's good advice too. And I would say the same thing to others, but there does come that point in time where, yes, you need to give yourself TLC and you need to let your body recover, but for your mental resilience and for the sake of believing in yourself and having that confidence that you still have control over some parts of your life, you need to have things to work toward that you can achieve and to be able to still grow and feel like you're making a difference in your own life as well as others. That was the next step that was big for me. Because everyone had been doing everything for me, I needed to be able to start helping myself and then turn around and start being able to contribute to others, to serve and love others. Oh, I love how you said it's so important to have hope and then create a path to actually get there. Because hope real hope in order for it to do you any good. It can't be this passive, like I'm just going to lay down in the middle of the storm and hope that a 
rainbow shows yeah. up, you know. But I, I hope love I pass my test with flying sure, colors. Well, sure. What are you doing to prepare Did for that? Did you open test? the book? Jody, mm-hmm. I love this. Okay, we're going to take a break and then come back in. It has now been, you said, between 12 and 13 years, right? Since the beginning of this yes. to today. Let's walk through. It's more than a decade. You're still here, which is wonderful. You're fabulous. You introduced yourself as being fabulous. That is true and wonderful. And yet we know that you're not 100% whole and healed. And check it off the, uh, you know, off the list. Like, hey, done with that. So when we come back, walk us through the decade or so that has passed from the beginning of this journey. We'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Jody. it's been more than a decade. A decade is a really long time. Like when I think back to where was I 10 or 12 years ago, how different did my life look, my kids, me, my own age, everything. That's a really long time to be on this journey. Can you tell us what it's been like? I think that is a very insightful comment because that was one of the things actually that was more of a challenge to me than I thought was when I hit the decade mark (laughs) because going into all of this and from my initial diagnosis and from my surgeries, we thought it was all going to be temporary. We really believed, the doctors believed, I believed that this was going to be not a bump in the road, maybe a boulder in the road, but we still thought we would be able to eventually conquer that boulder and get back on the same road. I didn't realize it would truly put me on a different path, that we would have to get around that boulder by finding a different way up the mountain. And when I hit the 10-year mark and I was still not 100% healed and whole, that was a little bit of a, a mental challenge. And I had to really come to grips with my life may never get back to the way that it was. And indeed, it likely won't. And the picture of the white picket fence life that I had in the beginning is never going to come back in that way. But when I came to the realization of how much I have learned and grown and become better through all of these struggles and the opportunities that I have had, I finally realized that I am not only grateful for this path, I'm not just grateful for the detour, but I wouldn't choose to change it. I wouldn't want to go back and do it again, but I would not want to change it because it has put me on this upward path for growth, for resilience, for not only changing my life, but also being able to help other people in their lives. Because I did have such a journey, and I continue to be on such a journey. Over the course of the 10 years after I got out of the hospital, I have had, well, now it's been 12 years, and I've I've since had 15 more surgeries to help with the complications and side effects. Uh, The biggest challenges have been with the facial paralysis, I've had multiple, I think I've had nine procedures just on the area surrounding my eye, 
I still can't fully blink, but I do now have a spring, a mechanical spring implanted into my eyelid to be able to help me open and close my eye. Uh, we got to a point where we had to make some pretty big decisions, either to suture my eye closed so that my eye was not damaged from being open all the time or potentially getting a glass eye. That was a really hard decision to make. In the end, we decided to try this procedure that put a mechanical spring in my eyelid, and that has been helpful. I still do not produce tears. I still do not have a blink, but I can at least have a little bit of closure, which protects my cornea and helps in that regard and has given me back a little bit of quality of life. But I have had a series of setbacks, and one of the things I've learned through the setbacks is that setbacks are part of life and they're part of everyone's life. And even though you may not see them when you look at your life's journey, you may not identify them as such. They are the little and sometimes big things that are on your path that you just have to find ways around. And the more you can prepare yourself for not only the fact that there are going to be setbacks, but prepare yourself for the specific thing when you get to it, the easier it is to overcome it. And I'll just give you one quick example the last two years I have been going through a process called facial reanimation and a series of specialty plastic surgeons in California at the facial paralysis Institute have been taking uh, nerves and muscles and arteries and veins out of my ankle and thigh and implanting them into my face in hopes of restoring a little bit of the, the use of my muscles so that I can chew, hold food in my mouth, uh, and hopefully not choke, because that is one of the ongoing struggles that I've had, is that I cannot control the muscles at the back of my throat and in my face. And so when I put something in my mouth, there's a very real possibility that it could just start to slide down my throat, and I don't have any control over it, and I don't know that it's happening until I start to choke. So it's been a very scary thing, not only for me, but for my children and my family, when I start to choke Everyone's just kind of there on pins and needles waiting to see if they need to come to my rescue. And so we are very hopeful that this series of procedures will not only help recreate some symmetry in my face, but will also restore some of the muscle movement and the functionality to help me have uh, the ability to control my food in my mouth a little bit more. Uh, so the long and short of that is to say, I chose to have these procedures done. And a lot of people were saying, why in the world would you choose more surgeries after everything you've been through? But not only did I choose them, I looked at them as, you know, I need to do these things. This is a potential solution. And I need to find the solutions. I can't just sit back and expect that things are going to get better on their own. I have to act. I can give it more time, but after 12 years, more time is not going to fix it. My muscle movement is not going to come back on its own. My nerves are not going to reconnect on their own. I had to take control of the situation and act. And in doing so, it gave me the opportunity to really see the importance of your own preparation and how that preparation plays into your outcome. And knowing that I was going to have my nerves damaged again and going in and doing these procedures because they literally had to open up my whole face, you know, take these parts out of my legs, put them in my face. And so then both sides of my face were paralyzed for a time 
while waiting for the nerves to recover. I once again lost a ton of weight and got down to a, a teeny tiny frame. Um, but I really had put myself in a position where mentally I was as ready as I could be. And physically, I was as ready as I could be. I knew I wouldn't be able to eat food. So I made tons of packs of like individual little packs of protein powders to be able to put in shakes so that I could still get my nutrients. I planned for a recovery process where I would start to, you know, strengthen my body again after the procedures. I really did very specific things and set a very specific plan for how I was going to get through this. And in doing so, worked with all of the other people around me to help make all of those things happen. So it doesn't mean that the surgeries were easy. Uh, I still had complications from some of the procedures. I ended up having some infections and going back into the hospital and showing up at the ER and uh, found out that I was allergic to something that they used in the procedure and it caused an infection. And then, But those challenges are so much easier to handle when mentally you look at it as, you know, maybe a little detour sign, but not so much a roadblock. And I love now that I'm not afraid of the detours. I can embrace the detours and realize that you can still have a beautiful journey and enjoy the destination, even if it means you have a bunch of detours on the way. I love that. I love thinking that it's a detour, not a roadblock, because a roadblock is the end. You're stuck. You're you, you, the only way to go is back, which in life you can never really go back. But a detour, okay, that's a really good visual for me to think about. Am I on the it's path? It's another way of getting yeah. there. Because am I on the path I thought I would be on 10, 12 years ago? No, I don't think any of us are, let's be honest. But could we still be headed where we wanted to head? Could we still have the hope that we're going where we want to go? Absolutely. The detour is sometimes longer and harder and annoying to us because we just want to get there in a straight line. But the detour can still get us to that goal. I love that visual, Jody. I just love it. Well, I really look now that we all live lives that are under construction all the time. And while we may know that eventually this is what we want our life to look like, those detours, those orange signs that say slow down, the orange cones that line the road to alert you that things are, are going to be changing and there's going to be some changes and other things that's ahead, all of those things are a real part of life. And I think we've really experienced that during COVID the last few years. And if you can be prepared and understand and adapt quickly, the quicker you can adapt when you see that orange sign that says slow down, the quicker you can start to say, okay, how am I going to handle it if my journey gets going in a different direction. What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? How am I going to adapt? We've all learned that those who thought they were just going to sit back and wait for things to get back to normal, oh, they got left behind during the last couple of years. You need to be able to adapt. And the faster you can adapt and the more you can make it so that your adaptations interrupt your normal life as little as possible, then the better off that you're going to be. Because you'll be able to continue on your journey. Whereas some people literally stop the car and say, what the heck, I, I don't have time for this, or I'm just going to wait until they open the road again. Well, you don't know how long it's going to take before you open the road again. You really might be better going along for the detour and then finding things to enjoy on the ride, stopping at the little-known ice cream shop along the way, taking in the beautiful sights and scenes, um, 
waving to the people who are in the car next to you who are also experiencing this detour. So when you can do this together in a group, when you can see that you're not the only one on the detour, when you can find reasons to keep going, uh, all of these things make a tremendous difference in not just getting through it, but actually becoming better because of it. Absolutely. I I love the visual on that. And I love the idea that we can still enjoy the journey along the detour. And I actually think that sometimes those detours are there to provide us opportunity for growth that would have happened in no other way. Absolutely. I now actually have a word I use. I, it's a word I came up with, but to me it symbolizes all of these things. And I call it ever growth, ever growth. So you think of evergreen and people think of evergreen trees as, Oh, they're beautiful all the time. Well, they flourish in all seasons, including in the cold and dark of winter. But part of that is because every year they lose 20 to 40% of their needles or leaves, um, which you don't always see because what you see is the green part. But with, that means that every few years, they're a brand new tree. They're they constantly are not in a state stagnant. of renewal. I they love that. They are growing. That. They are renewing. They are becoming better and stronger. And that is what allows them to flourish in those times of cold and darkness. And if we can take that concept of ever growth, it can be a process of intentional development that allows us to have mental strength and courage from the adversities that we go through. Okay, whatever I love challenges this. That come. I love this so much. We're going to take one last break, and then we are going to have you teach us in the last final few minutes of these two episodes what resilience looks like to you and more of these nuggets of tips and tricks that can help each of us help each other and also help our own perspectives because I think that's what you've really given us is kind of a new perspective on several things. So I'm excited for the final, final few minutes we get with you, Jody. It's been amazing to be with you for these couple of days. We'll be right back. Okay, Jody, we've got the final few minutes of these two amazing and inspiring episodes. You've walked us through a decade of everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And you're here and you're fabulous and you're teaching us. We always love to ask our guests, what does resilience look like to you? To me, resilience is ever growth. It is becoming anti-fragile. It is getting better and stronger from the very things that would otherwise seek to weaken or destroy you. It is taking the hardest things in life and deciding to become a better, stronger person because of them, not in spite of them, but because of them. I love when you can talk to people and they can tell you about the hardest thing in their lives and how that also led them to the best part of their lives, to finding themselves, to discovering a new job or journey, or even to have situations like Jenny, you and Michelle have had where you've had incredible loss, but you have taken on that loss and created an opportunity to help and love others and have compassion because of your own experiences. 
you have learned and grown and have created opportunities when you could have allowed for entropy or just allowed for that devastation and the hopelessness to continue. But you were intentional about it. You made decisions, you followed through, and you did the hard things to actually become better because of your journey. You know, I think that's interesting. I We're both on some whatever pages on Facebook, and and sometimes people will write in there like, I can't do this anymore, or I don't know how you get through this, or I just don't want to do this anymore. And sometimes it will become kind of a complaining fest. And, you know, the hard thing for me is I do want to wrap my arms around that person and just love them. And at the same time, I realized that at the end of the day, it was me who had to pull myself up and choose a different choice. And so, you know, often I'll write in there, you just have to choose. (laughs) You just have to choose to do this and you're going to be okay. I remember um, when I was in college, I was dating this young man for a little while and I had grown up. Many of you know, my father had killed himself when I was a kid and life had been challenging and we'd kind of had this storied background. My brothers had gotten involved in drugs and drinking when we were teenagers and that kind of really tore our family apart. So I had kind of all of this young adult baggage in in my life and in my family because I thought everyone around me had a perfect life because that's what we think, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember this young kid that I was dating, one time he just looked at me and he's like, you've really just kind of got to get over that and decide to... And I was like, how dare you? Because before, anytime I told my story, it was met with compassion and we're so sorry and empathy, that would be terrible. When I get what he was saying, the same mm-hmm. thing that both you, Michelle and Jody have said that, yeah, we need to be nice. We need to be empathetic. We need to have grace. We need to have patience. And we need to just get up and get going and find a way to let it be a detour and not a roadblock, even if it looks like a roadblock. Guess what? It's right. only a roadblock if I stop. And it is our story. And it, it, like it is our story, right? Sure. It's tragic. My kids all lost their dad yeah. young and... I lost my husband just as we were getting the prime to of your empty life. nest. Yeah. Just to, we got through all of the hard work and we were just getting to the reward stage. The, the and, 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 everything, and it is tragic. It is tragic. And everything was ripped from me. And that was tragic. And I don't want to tell myself that I'm a victim because of it. I'm not a victim. I'm just a human in this experience, and it sucks. My husband didn't get to live out the rest of his life with me. My ideal future is gone, and now I get to dream new dreams, and I have to have a different vision. And you can be stronger. And and look, you know, the, the great news is, is that I had to find my own purpose when a lot of times my purpose was tied up in my husband and in that relationship. Sure. It was a little bit entangled and codependent. And, you know, this is an opportunity to live life on my terms and with my purpose and vision. And so, you know, I get what you're saying. Those detours, they aren't necessarily really convenient or pleasant. But once we get through them, there can still be joy in the process and in the experience. And I think that what I love is I think of it as, you know, we're writing our stories every day and every you day. have all of these blank pages ahead of you and you get to choose what happens on those pages. And I had a lot of people who came to me and said, 
why are you so mad? Are you going to sue those surgeons because they messed up your face and they complicated this? And this? and I thought, am I going to No. That, <laughs> number one, that would never have occurred to me. Number two, what good would it do anyone? And I'm grateful that they were willing to take a chance when no one else was. Right. But they I actually saved people, your life. And they saved my there's, life. There's but I had risk involved. I had people who took the opposite view, who who wanted to sue everyone, who were mad that things didn't turn out the way that they wanted. And they struggled for years and years with that victim mentality, with the blame. My life is not what I wanted it to be. And I had those conversations with people, and I realized, whoa, that is not what I want for my life. I want to write a story where I am better, where I am stronger. And the, the thought that came to me was in the Bible, there is a scripture verse that says, choose ye this day whom you will serve. And most people who read the Bible are familiar with that verse. But the thing that really stuck out to me was, choose ye this day. I used to think of that as a one-time choice. Like, okay, I'm going to choose to, to follow God or to have faith or to make the best of my life. But the reality is, it is a daily choice. You wake up every day and you take that blank piece of paper and you decide what this part of your chapter is going to look like by your daily decision. And that is one of great power. That is where you decide each and every day whether you are bitter or whether you are better. Well, and, grow, and, and we are, are hopeless. And we are the authors of our own stories, right? So we get to write mm-hmm. it every day. It's and you so know what? awesome. What I love about that is, and this is kind of where I am in my own journey, because I'm reconciling this past path I was on and I wanted to stay on and this current path I am on that I've just accepted. Okay, here I am. But as we write these new pages for tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, we bring with us every yesterday, mm-hmm. what we've learned, what we've been through. We bring through the beautiful views and the and the road bumps that we've been through. And and I think for a while after losing my husband, I kind of felt like it was, I needed an eraser, like the whole past would get erased so that I could have a hopeful future because it felt to me like the past could only be sad or the past could only be heavy. When now this this past journey or the up to now part of my own life journey is this energizing preface to whatever tomorrow is and I don't let go of what yesterday was because it'd be foolish to start all over again you know hopefully I've learned and grown over the last 42 years but I'm kind of in that spot right now in my own grief journey where I can celebrate the highs and lows behind me because I can see how they've made me who I am good or bad I mean there are lots of things I'm still working on but it also gives me kind of this optimistic but realistic outlook that everything from chapters one and two is going to be with me at chapter 45 and 46. And so I don't really ever have to lose or let go or move on, which I think a lot of people in the grief world, you know, those are kind of triggering terms. But Jody, I love how you've helped us see this. We're going to take a blank page and we're going to choose today. I'm going to choose to be fabulous today. Even if I mess up, even if things go wrong, even if I face the worst case scenario, I can still have that outlook that is both optimistic and realistic. I still just keep echoing what you said earlier that hope, we got to have hope. And then you got to got to have a little bit of plan and a little bit of gumption and a little bit of just wherewithal to make it happen. Grit. So thank you. Grit. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you've shared. Thank you for enduring what you have endured and continue to endure so well. 
and so openly because that conscious choice you've made to be open with your story has proven to help so many of us with our own stories. I would love to know, can you tell us before we wrap things up, where can we find more of your story? Um, follow you maybe on, on social media. I know you speak quite a bit as a professional speaker. Is there a place we can send our listeners to learn more about you, to read what you've written, to hear what you've spoken, and to just continue this inspirational connection? Well, thank you for the opportunity to share that. And I have written some books about my journey in fact, my memoir became a bestseller and has won awards, which is all the more proof to me that when you choose every day that some good things can come out of even the biggest detours. Um, and my memoir is called The Sun Still Shines. It can be found in any book retailer. It's probably easiest to get on Amazon. Um, and I am very active on social media, specifically on LinkedIn and Facebook, and a little bit on Instagram as well. And all of those, you can find me at Jody, J-O-D-I, Orgill Brown, O-R-G-I-L-L Brown, Jody Orgill Brown. Or you can go to my website, which is JodyOBrown.com. I love it. Thank you, Jody. Thank you for everything you've shared, for uplifting, inspiring, and teaching us today. Yeah, thank you so much. For our viewers, if you'd like to subscribe, you can to our podcast. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating and a review. If you know someone or if you have a story about your life that you'd be willing to share, send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And remember, whatever you do today... Please remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other people are facing in their lives. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.